G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Big thank you to everyone that's listening, and make sure you hit the subscribe button on your smartphone. Um, and we're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this podcast. We don't ask for much in return, though we'd be incredibly grateful if you could just pop to, to Apple uh, Podcasts, which is the new name for iTunes now, and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, such as those uh, that have been recently left. Uh, KG258, I've only just discovered these podcasts, and now catching up on the whole library of really useful topics. Um, great refreshing knowledge and picking up uh, a few new top tips to very enjoyable and entertaining. Thank you, RVC. So really, thank you for the time to uh, uh, to give us a review, and uh, it really helps with the metrics, things that I don't necessarily understand, um, but, but at least it helps people get the clinical information to the people that that want it. So this week, uh, we're talking to Dr. Patrick Kenny. This is a uh, Skype recording that I did with him. Uh, Patrick was was very patient with me from uh, from getting to grips with the intricacies of uh, of recording a podcast on on Skype. Sadly, Brian wasn't involved. If it was, I'm sure it'd be uh, I'm sure it'd be a much better experience for for all of us. What we've done is we've uh, we've divided the talk into a uh, uh, into two. Um, because uh, Patrick had had a lot to say, so so that's that's great for us. Patrick was head of the neurology and neurosurgery service here at the RVC, and now he's in back on his home shores of uh, of Sydney, Australia, at a referral clinic soon to be determined, if if not or already in the uh, in the local press. Um, he's also one of my friends from university. We graduated together, and I've slowly followed him around the world. So we're going to talk to Patrick about uh, spinal trauma. He's he's known as uh, the person who has performed more hypervasectomies in the world than anyone else uh, on dogs or cats. So, uh, but we're actually going to talk to him about spinal trauma today so on with the show if we're talking about traumatic spinal cord injury secondary to external trauma like um uh, particularly road traffic accidents i think that that uh, will probably vary between region and population of animals likelihood of, of the animal to be out on roads or the you know dogs in that population to be out on roads uh, etc um but uh you know i i would say from from most of the places that i've worked that it and uh, but, you know, I, I think a lot of that's in practice. It is, it is quite a commonly encountered uh, thing in small animal practice. Um, uh, I mean, and, and broadly speaking, it's, it's not just um, external trauma secondary to road traffic traffic accidents, which is which is probably one of the more common ones, but also falls, dog fight injuries. Um, you know, some parts of the world even gunshot wounds um, can cause uh, can cause vertebral. Uh, fractures, luxations, and and uh, and uh, spinal cord injury as a result of that. Uh, we also see, um, you know, probably more commonly internal traumas. So so things like intervertebral disc herniations and um, acute non-compressive nucleus pulposus extrusions or fibrocartilaginous embolisms, which will kind of group together uh, the latter two as, as ischemic myelopathy. Um, uh, but you know, I, I guess the, the the key point is that um, the, the the of the actual traumatic spinal cord injury, um, the the pathophysiology and the principles of management uh, are in uh, you know pretty much all cases going to be very similar. 
So if we have a uh, an animal that's uh, presented to us for spinal cord injury, are there any uh, are, are there any common approaches that you think that that we we should address? Yeah. So so um, I, I, I guess from the point of view of animals that have, have suffered. Um, you know, from the, the, the history of the case coming in, if they've suffered a sufficient trauma um, uh, to cause a, a, an injury to their, their spinal cord, um, they'll often have injuries to other body systems, or they may well do, which may be more immediately threatening to life. So, so with, you know, pretty much as with any trauma patient, um, you're going to want to do a, a pri primary survey, um, assessing airway, breathing, circulation, uh, etc., um, and and make any stabilising interventions as necessary at that point. Um, and also uh, take a, uh, you know, at least at this stage when you when you're trying to to stabilise the patient. Um, get at least a brief history um, of, of what happened um, to try and recognise whether there is the possibility of a spinal um, uh, injury or instability uh, being present, because that, that really needs to be recognised early. Um, you know, just like in, in people with, with a potential spinal injury, the, the movement of an unstable spine may cause further injury. Yeah, potentially irreversible injury. Um, so if there's any suspicion, uh, the patient really should be um, immobilised, uh, generally in lateral recumbency, um, you know, on some sort of rigid board and, and secured in place with um, tape straps. Um, you know, there are radiolucent spinal boards commercially available, but not every practice has them. So any, any rigid board of a, a reasonable size and material uh, really can be used. And so you said, Pat, about uh, getting some some history related to the, the trauma itself. So are you, are you considering asking questions um, about how the patient was ambulatory after that collision or that event? Does that does that influence whether you're more concerned or, or not? Uh, it, yeah, it, it, it can do. That's that's definitely an important part of the history to get. Um, you know, in the um, you know, I, I, I guess particularly if you've got a uh, a, a very traumatised patient, you might not have time to um, uh, in, in the first few minutes to go through a very sort of thorough history with the, with the owner. But once once the patient is more stable, that's that's definitely a, a, an important thing. You know, for example, if if a dog was um, witnessed to have been uh, hit by a car, car or fallen from a height uh, and uh, it was able to walk for a period of time after that um, injury that that at least suggests that there is a or was after the accident an intact spinal cord an anatomically intact intact spinal cord um, yeah animals that haven't been able to um, or haven't been seen to move their pelvic limbs at all say um, after the injury um, it doesn't um, it doesn't mean that they do have an anatomic spinal cord transection but um, you know it, it, it could suggest that uh, you know the animal it's an unknown whether they've got an intact spinal cord or or not um, you know similarly uh, you know individual limbs tail etc um, but yeah f function after the injury prior to coming into the clinic can uh, can, can also give some localising value as, as, as well because the, the neurological exam, um, even though you can perform an, a near-complete neurological exam on an animal strapped in lateral recumbency, um, 
you know, the, the parts of the examination like gait or posture reactions you can't assess. So um, you, you might be able to get a bit more of an idea of what the animal was capable of prior to presentation from the history. We spoke a little uh, when the mics were closed about uh, and your approach to analgesia. And obviously, a lot of people would want to give these guys some analgesia pretty quickly, whether they have an IV or get an IV access uh, or intramuscularly. Do you, do you, do you think that, uh, well, obviously that, that's fine to do, but do you want to know anything neurologically about the patient before you do that? Yeah, so that, that's a very good point. Uh, as well so it's it um you know while you know obviously these animals if, if they've suffered a a, a a trauma sufficient to cause a, a spinal cord injury that they're, they're, they're going to be pretty painful and it's uh you know it's, it's not a, a, an unreasonable um uh, reaction to want to give them uh, some analgesia fairly early but um it, it is really 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 important to check the animal's um deep pain perception in the limbs that you're suspecting to be affected so say an animal um you know comes in seems to be moving its thoracic limbs uh, fairly well but not its 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 pelvic limbs and tail um you really want to check the uh deep pain perception to to both pelvic limbs medial and lateral digit and the tail prior to giving analgesia and, and the reason for that is that deep pain perception is is the most important prognostic indicator for whether these animals will return to function if they're treated appropriately um now if you, if you give them um uh if you give them analgesia and uh you you don't see a positive response you don't know whether that animal cannot feel its pelvic limbs or whether the pathways are intact and it would be able to show that it can feel its pelvic limbs but the you know generally opiate analgesia on board is is attenuating that response so if you get a if you get a false negative response you may give that animal an inappropriately poor prognosis which may be a trigger for euthanasia so um you know, you know, waiting just a few seconds just to, um, uh, you know, at, yeah, pinch it, pinch its toes, pinch its tail. It doesn't take very long. Um, so you're not, you're not withholding analgesia for a long period of time. But that, that, um, uh, you know, that that answer may determine whether that animal gets, you know, the the owners want to you know go forward and treat the animal or, or not so it's it's, it's uh yeah su super important to to check the pain before giving analgesia in these cases can can that ever be mistaken though pat can you ever get a deep pain negative patient that uh, that will actually regain function I mean, how how uh specific um, and yeah, how, how specific is it for for a turn of function, or, or in in these patients have traumatic injury? Okay, well maybe I'll maybe I'll take a step back and, and just um, uh, I'll just r remind everyone what we mean by by checking deep pain perception. So there's um, uh, nociception or the ability of an animal to consciously feel. Um, noxious or painful stimuli um, the way we test that is by using um, hemostats because they're a reliably noxious stimulus and we use those hemostats we, we, we clamp down on 
uh, bone, so so sort of periosteum, so either just sort of above the nail bed or actually on the digit or on the um, the, the caudal vertebrae in the tail. Um, that doesn't you don't need to squeeze for very long, but you want to give them a a um, you know a, a, a enough of a a, um, a clamp of the hemostats that they you know they should be able to um or a, a normal animal would would respond to that now then what happens with that stimulus is that goes from the um from the receptors up the peripheral nerve up the, up the spinal cord up to the brain and then it's recognized as a painful stimulus and and the reaction we're looking for is that uh, we want to see the animal um, alter its behavior um, you know it could turn around it could growl it could lick it could whine a bit or, or, or whimper but that that behavior response tells us that that signal has gotten all the way from the limb all the way up to the up to the brain so that's a that's a positive response um one potential confounder and, and this is where a lot of um you know some some students and some clinicians and, and particularly owners um you know can get get quite hopeful about is, is if you pinch them and they withdraw the limb um you know that's obviously a um you know you see movement in the animal but that's just a that's just the local withdrawal reflex so if the reflex arc is intact the animal will withdraw the limb um, but that may happen even if there's an if, even if there's a, a a functional or a complete anatomical transection so that uh, of the spinal cord above that reflex arc so that you could you know a spinal cord could be severed completely uh, in the thoracolumbar region say uh, and the animal you know that there's no ability for pain to be the pain response to be transmitted from the, the limb up to the brain. Um, uh, but if the reflex arc is intact, they will still withdraw the limb. What they won't, they won't be able to do or they, they won't do is have that behavioral response, response that we're looking for. Um, I guess to, to your point about how, um, how, um, I guess uh, sensitive is probably not the right word, but um, how reliable that is for prognosticating. Um, the presence or absence of deep pain is, is the last testable function that we have. Um, so, uh, you know, most animals, in fact, almost all animals that have a, a spinal cord injury and have deep pain perception present on examination that are then gone on to be treated appropriately almost all of those animals will go on to to walk again they might not have a normal gait but they will be able to to generate a gait um, now depending on the cause of spinal injury for example um, animals that um, lose deep pain perception to their, their pelvic limbs or, or tail secondary to a, a intervertebral disc herniation. So just say, you know, that you know, typical case like a dachshund that comes into the clinic has an intervertebral disc herniation. Um, if that animal uh, has an absence of deep pain perception uh, to its, its pelvic limbs and tail uh, and then is treated by surgical decompression um you know that dog has around about a 50 or 60 percent chance of going on to to walk again so compared to if if the dog 
had deep pain perception it's it's chances with surgery going on to walk again are sort of well over you know well over 90 well over 95 uh percent so there's there's quite a drop for those cases just based on whether we can detect deep pain perception or not um unfortunately with with acute traumatic spinal injuries like you know dogs hit by cars with vertebral fracture luxation fallen from a height vertebral fracture luxation um if they have lost deep pain perception um their prognosis for um going on to walk again uh, is very grim um you know the prognosis for urinary or continence uh, in one study was was zero percent and generating a gate about ten percent and even those that generated a gate it probably wasn't a, a gate based on um, voluntary motor activity it was they're probably more likely to be spinal walkers so um you know the the, the prognosis for recovery from a uh, a vertebral fracture luxation with no deep pain perception is is very low um and we can quite confidently tell the owners that um if they do have deep pain perception and they're treated you know they you know for example they have a you know decompression surgical stabilization of their spine uh if they do have deep pain perception their prognosis is actually quite good for walking again it might take a few few months but um uh, you know, pro- prognosis is likely to be um, up in the, you know, up in the 90 percents. Um, so th- there's a very big difference there. So, um, uh, you know, the presence or absence of deep pain perception is, is the, the key prognosticator. If you are confident that you are um, getting a response or not, um, I guess, I guess some things that may um, sort of attenuate that response. If, if you've got an animal that's that has also had a head trauma, they might not be responding appropriately. For example, if you an animal with a head trauma without a spinal cord injury may be, say, comatose, and those animals won't respond to deep pain perception either, because that's a that's a brain injury, and that's kind of what also defines um, coma. Um, you know, animals that come in and they're you know markedly so hypotensive they're in shock etc they might not respond um uh they might not be in a position to respond adequately as well so i I guess that these are all confounders to be kept in mind but you know sometimes you have an animal come in and you, you test deep pain perception in its in its pelvic limbs and it's not really reacting that much um uh, and you, you're really not sure. I, I do, you know, I, I'll test their thoracic limb as well. You know, and, and some of those animals, if they really react, like they don't like having their their front legs pinched, um, but you get no response from that back their their, their back legs, their pelvic limbs. That's probably going to be a significant finding. Um, sometimes you get very stoic animals, very large animals. You know, some I've had some Great Danes that come in before, and they've you know they're, they're, they've got no reason to lack deep pain in their pelvic limbs, but they, um, you know, you don't get a response in in the you know pelvic limbs or the thoracic limbs. But those animals are, um, you know, just extremely extremely stoic. Um, I guess from from experiences as, as as well, a lot of prey animals. Like if you if you're testing a, I guess it's a big prey animal, but like a you know a cow or a sheep or, you know. Um, uh, you know, other ruminant species, they don't always respond to, to deep pain perception like a dog or a cat will. So I guess that they are confounding factors, yeah, if that preemptively answers your question.
It, it does. It does indeed. Um, and so, if you're going to give some some uh, analgesia, Pat, do you have any go-to? Or I imagine you've worked in a variety of different uh, in different countries. Is there is there anything that's made you think that that's that works better? Or, or? Uh, I, generally, a, um, a, a, a an opioid like you know methadone, morphine. Um, you know, I'd, I'd give a. Um, uh, a, a full agonist. I, I wouldn't give a partial agonist. Um, uh, uh, you know, just because you you know plans to um, you know at this early stage, you're, you're not necessarily on it on an even keel yet. So um, you know plans do change, and you might want to change which uh, which drugs you are giving. So I, I wouldn't give a partial agonist at, at, at this stage. But um, uh, yeah, a, yeah, an opioid I think would be my my first go-to. Pat, we might have skipped this bit, but uh, can you tell me what your preferred method of immobilising patients is, please, and when you should immobilise patients? Yeah, so so I, I'd immobilise them as soon as possible. I mean, get you know, but, you know, obviously, um, uh, you know, we we, we don't have um, veterinary. Um, Paramedics or ambulance officers going out to the the scene and and mobilising the animal, you know, exactly where they are, uh, where they bounced off the car or at the the bottom of the the, the cliff, etc. And you know, sometimes owners just sort of turn up with these animals, and they, they may have been, um, uh, you know, carried or or handled in a um, uh, you know, a, a, a less than ideal up up to the point that they reach you. But I, you know, certainly, I think the the first point of contact between um, your clinical staff and the animal, the, the the first thing should be to immobilise them. So if they're if they're in the um, if they call the owners call ahead of time, uh, try and give them some in instructions to um, do what they can, uh, you know, within reason at the scene. If they, if they come and they you come to the clinic and the animal's in the car, I would, I would go out to the car and try and, um, if possible, um, uh, put them on something there to carry them into the clinic. Um, you know, the, the, the key point is that you, you don't want an unstable spine moving around and injuring the, the, the spinal cord any further. Um, for most dogs, um, you'd have them in, in, in lateral recumbency. Um, doesn't really matter what, what side it is, you know, most of the time the animal's going to be in some sort of lateral recumbency but by the time it presents to you so or by the time the, the owners are bringing it in so i just slip the board um under the the side that they're they're laying on i certainly wouldn't, wouldn't roll them onto the other side to get them onto a, a board um and then it, it it depends where you suspect the injury to to be um if you suspect the injury to be in the um thoracic or lumbar um, spine um, then you'd want to use straps or tape or you know whatever whatever you have at, at hand you know generally for um, you know within the clinic I'll, I'll use you know that sort of um, you know three inch ten centimeter wide um, you know elastoplast or, or, or something uh, and I, I'd strap them over the shoulder I generally use two straps one in front of the shoulder one behind the shoulder um, crossed over uh, and then also um, uh, two straps again above and below the, the hip. Um, if 
I suspect that there's a cervical spinal injury, then you should also strap them over the over the head so they can't lift their their head up or, or move their 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 neck. So that will be a, a you know a fifth uh, you know a, a fifth strap kind of over the, the the back of the head over the sort of level of the ear. Maybe now's a good time to talk about actually what's going on, as in the the pathophysiology of of injury to the to the spinal cord. So, would you mind uh, briefly saying what's happening acutely? Yeah, so I, I guess the the spinal cord injury occurs by by two mechanisms, um, much like uh, uh, you know, much like traumatic brain injury, um, traumatic spinal cord injury. There's a a primary injury and a, a secondary injury. So, the the primary injury is the actual you know, results from the, um, the the initial traumatic compressive force exerted on the spinal cord. So that that can cause, you know, a, you know grossly contusion, you know, hematoma hematoma formation, compression, or laceration of the, the spinal cord parenchyma. Um, and at a, a cellular level, you get mechanical disruption of cell membranes and axons and, and blood vessels. Um, you know, the initial primary injury as, as a clinician, you have no influence on because, you know, that's already happened. That's, you know, that's the initial trauma. That's why the animal is, is, is going to come in to, to see you amongst potentially its other injuries. Um, what you do have control over as a clinician is, is potentially, um, uh, you know, mitigating uh, further primary injury. So this is where, you know, keeping them on a you know, a, a rigid board trying to mobilise their spine during the initial stage is important. Um, and also if there is ongoing compression or, or instability of the vertebral column, that can potentially be be addressed. Um, now, this, the primary injury, it also initiates a, a, the, the mechanisms of the secondary injury, which is a, a deleterious cascade of, of vascular biochemical and inflammatory events that perpetuate uh, and expand the zone of tissue destru- destruction. Um, and there, there are many parts to this cascade um, uh, that involve tissue hyperperfusion, um, ionic disturbances, excitotoxicity. So that's you know much like secondary brain injury. There's a you know leakage of, of um, neurotransmitter into the um, into the extracellular space, and it kind of ramps uh, everything up. Uh, you get free radical induced membrane damage, uh, and then then inflammation uh, as well. Um, and uh, you know these also go on to affect um, spinal cord perfusion. So normal spinal cord perfusion uh, of the tissue is quite tightly regulated, and this this auto regulation is lost after the the um, injury. Um, and uh, you know the, the problem here is that perfusion of the injured spinal cord is is very closely linked with outcome. So um, you know not only you know if you can have hypoperfusion of, of the cord at a at a local level as in the secondary injury and the primary, you know, primary compressive injury, if there is one, um, that can affect outcome. Uh, and this can made, be made doubly worse if you have an animal that has, you know, polytrauma and it's, it's got systemic hypoperfusion as well. So that, that can be, um, you know, also deleterious to, to outcome. Is there anything, I suppose, above and beyond maintaining normal perfusion and blood pressure that we need to focus on? Are, are there drugs, and 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 do we um, do we do you want to talk about steroids now, or should we, uh, or should we talk about steroids a bit later? 
Uh, well, now's, now's probably a good time as any. Um, you know, I, I, I guess if we um, if, if we're talking about treatment, so I, I guess they're, they're the two, you know, the, the, the um, pathophysiology of the, the um, traumatic spinal cord injury can be thought of as two um, uh, two things. One, one, the primary injury, so the, you know, uh, part of it has already happened, but, you know, there may be ongoing compression or instability that causes further, you know, impact injury to the, the, the cord and then you have the secondary injury which is that that deleterious cascade which um is uh one of the key components of that is a progressive um uh, you know progressive uh on, ongoing poor perfusion to the uh the spinal cord itself so when, when we when we think about treating these cases um you know treatment we can also think about in two parts, as in, um, we want to uh, prevent the ongoing primary injury um, if we can, uh, and we also want to minimise, you know, development of, uh, you know, and progression of any of the, the secondary mechanisms of injury in the short term. In, in the in the sort of medium uh, to longer term, um, you know, that's that's where rehabilitation and, and you know, and I guess good nursing care th throughout are going to be uh, important. Um, I guess when, when I talk about treatment of spinal cord injury, I often talk about managing the secondary injury first because, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, it's going to be appropriate in all cases of spinal cord injury, regardless of the cause, you know, whether they have a vertebral fracture, uh, fracture or luxation or not, or whether they have an ischemic myelopathy, whether they have an intervertebral disc herniation, um, you know, in any of those cases, you're going to want to, to uh, manage the same cascade of secondary spinal uh, injury. And, and it's generally something that you can do straight, you know, you can and should do um, straight away, whereas you know managing the the primary injury generally takes a bit more time because you need to do say further diagnostic tests like you know um, uh, you know we can talk a bit later about survey radiographs and CTs and uh, etc. Um, but the I guess the key point with managing secondary spinal cord in injury um, that the principal aim of therapy is to maintain. Um, spinal cord perfusion. Um, I guess in the patient as a whole, um, you want to uh, avoid um, hypoxemia or hypotension, um, you know, uh, as much as possible because they are are strongly correlated with poor neurological outcomes. Um, so you want to you know, monitor their oxygenation with whatever meth, meth, um, uh, method you have to, to hand. Um, you know, supplementing um, oxygen. You could probably make an argument for any cases in the early stage to, to supplement um, oxygen, uh, whether you can you can measure their oxygenation status or, or not. Um, and also, um, you know, ideally, if you can measure um, uh, blood pressure as well as um, you know your other uh, clinical um, markers of uh, tissue perfusion. Um, uh, you know, monitor and treat as necessary because, because you know, I, I guess to your point, jumping to steroids, um, you know, while there, there have been many medical therapies um, for the acute phase of spinal cord injury um, have been investigated and are continuing to be investigated, you know, none have proven more consistently beneficial than avoiding hypotension. Um, 
steroids, I, I guess, are a, are a um, sort of thing in the, um, you know, the, the kind of all over the literature. Um, I guess the, the, the key point is that um, they are no longer recommended uh, and they shouldn't be administered to patients with spinal cord injury. Um, the, the, the large doses of, of methylprednisolone sodium succinate um, that's no longer recommended for human spinal cord injury in any country. Um, uh, there's poor evidence for a clinical benefit and there's very good evidence um, associating it with harmful side effects, including death. Um, Methylpred's not been shown to improve the outcomes in dogs with spinal cord injury, secondary to intervertebral disc herniation. Um, and similarly, there's no... Um, there's no there's there's no difference has been shown in neurological outcome in dogs given dexamethasone after spinal cord injury secondary to disc herniation um, while the dex administration has has greatly increases the likelihood of adverse effects such as um, urinary tract infections diarrhea um, you know and you know which are you know, you know particularly if they go on to ulcerate a, you know a suboptimal um, so, uh, yeah, glucocorticoids, I, I would say, are out in all cases. Can, can I also say I, I uh, was at a European emergency critical care meeting last year when we spoke about um, not giving steroids in, in head injury as a specific thing. And again, it's a, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the crash trial. Uh, um, we, you know, we extrapolate a lot from, from people. Um, and... It was what what I thought was quite interesting was that I, I thought this is this is put to bed as in I thought there's you know there's evidence to suggest that uh, um, as you said there's deleterious effects. Um, however, what one of the members of the panel did say that that he knows there's still people you know uh, pe and people who who they work with who, who still you know give steroids in, in these cases is that is that your findings well is it, as in is it contentious or is it just old school people not wanting to change i know i'm not trying to say names or anything but but is it because we just have a lack of evidence in the species that we deal with that, that some people kind of justify themselves because I, you know, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure what I'm, what I'm getting at here as well. But I think what I'm trying to say is, is, is it all contentious? Do you, do you come across people in neurology meetings that still give steroids and uh, um, and say, well, uh, that's what I do? I, I would say it's um, in some quarters it's still contentious, but I don't believe it should be. If that makes sense, um, there, there's no. Um, I mean, the, the the crash trial for head injury is interesting because that you know that that was a um, that was a big trial. Um, uh, you know, it was a a um, placebo-controlled, um, you know, double-blinded study where they you know they enrolled or they wanted to enroll twenty thousand patients with with head injury in a Glasgow coma scale of less than or fourteen or less, or uh, I think, um, and they either got 
the big dose of methylpred or they didn't and the the thought at the time was that there would you know people were you know sort of thinking there, there would either be a slight improvement with methylpred or no difference and they ended up having to stop the trial after 10,000 patients because they found that um, there was already a, a, a statistically significant trend towards mortality in the methylpred group so so now um, high dose steroids for acute um, traumatic brain injury is you know it is um, you know there's level one evidence that it is contraindicated so that's that's put to bed um, with spinal cord injury it's not um, it's not as easy because there hasn't been a a trial of that size um, to um, say that it is absolutely contraindicated um, but the the guidelines from um, you know, the, the American Congress of Neurological Surgeons, um, you know, while it's not worded that they are contraindicated, it is fairly strongly worded that there are many, many studies out there now um, that have shown um, uh, mainly no benefit um, uh, and there is, you know, overwhelming evidence uh, from many studies that, uh, you know, the adverse effects are, are, are much greater. And, you know, and keeping in mind these are, um, you know, these are massive doses of, of steroids. They're, they're um, uh, it's, uh, you know, 30, um, 30 mg per kg of, of methylpred followed by a 24 to 48-hour infusion of 5 mg per kg you know, every hour, um, you know, that's a, that's a massive dose and it's, um, uh, a massively immunosuppressing dose that you're giving to a, a patient, which may have pulmonary injuries. They may have injuries to their gut. Um, uh, you can induce an acute steroid myopathy, which may exacerbate any weakness they have. And, and interestingly, you know, this whole methylpred thing goes down to, goes back to, um, you know, the only, one trial that that showed a uh, a potential benefit of, of steroids was the um the the nasus 2 trial north american acute spinal cord injury study i think it was called national acute spinal cord injury study um the second study that was done um in the uh late 80s early 90s i think and that they showed a a um a, a very small improvement in motor scores in a subset of human patients that had um, they didn't have a a, um, a, uh, a complete spinal cord uh, injury that, that as in those patients still had some motor function um, prior to having surgery and I, th I think that I think if you look at the stats or break it down, it's, it's actually only a, a small number of patients that are treated, like about 22 patients out of the, the 400 in the trial, of a small subset that were treated um, between three and eight hours of, of injury. And these are looking at a very small increase in motor scores one year later, like as in, as, you know, as in can this person move their finger um, or not, which is tremendous, you know, maybe tremendously important if you're a, a human and that might mean whether you can drive your own wheelchair or, or not. Um, but, but realistically speaking for, for dogs and cats, um, you know, whether they can waggle a toe one year post trauma or not, um, you know, is, is, is probably unlikely to be a you know, clinically significant significant finding. And even in people, they, they did a, a follow-up trial called the NASA's three trial, 
um, surprisingly, um, in uh, I, th- I think that was in the 90s as well, where they also, apart from these motor scores, they they um, they also included um, sort of functional grading. I can't remember the name the, the name of the the score that they gave, but it was you know basically you know so you can you can you know. You, you you have you know a slightly higher motor grade than you know others but does that actually translate to a difference in your quality of wasn't a quality of life score but you know whether whether you can you know actually whether that changes your lifestyle for example like do, are you able to you know, actually do more you know with that ability to to waggle their their finger etc um and they, they they didn't find a difference there so um, yeah, it's kind of been a, you know, a, uh, a, a several decade thing of, you know, steroids sort of coming in and then, you know, it was considered standard of care and then now they're, they're pretty much dropped out and they're, they're, they're definitely not considered standard of care anymore. And in, in fact, the recommendations are, are pretty much don't, don't give them. Yeah. So don't give them. <laughs> no, absolutely, steroids are steroids are bad. Um, I, I, I mean, it raises well, st- steroids. Steroids are good in appropriate circumstances, yeah. but, but uh, not not this case. Not not in spinal trauma or or, uh, or traumatic brain injury for for sure. I mean, I suppose there's, there's probably a separate podcast uh, that maybe um, we could do to talk about how how things you know take time to change. You know, once it's doctrine or uh, that this is a this is what we do because. I definitely remember I when I was a student, you know, seeing steroids pumped into these guys, and yeah. uh, and that just seemed to be what what was, you know, the you know you, you had the uh, methyl bread bottles that uh, cracked, you know, to make it feel like <laughs> this was yeah. this is what you should be doing. Um, um, but it's probably going to take it more of a you know a, another decade maybe before everyone's not oh, doing yeah. steroids, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think the, you know, the, the um, you know, vet, veterinary textbooks have a, a long shelf life in many practices. And then, and then on top of that, the, you know, there's even, um, you know, fairly recent spinal cord injury chapters in, in veterinary textbooks, which, which just, um, you know, they, they say that the, uh, it's controversial, but here's the dose, um, which um, I don't think is, uh, you know, a, a, a strong enough uh, warning in these circumstances. I mean, I, I remember my, my first year out in uh, in practice when I was, um, you know, by myself doing the the, the night shifts and um, looking at my emergency book. Um, the, the protocol for spinal injury was actually, um, you know, give them methylpred, and if they if if you don't see an improvement within, I think it was two days or something then, like that, then then consider surgery, which you know I I now find quite horrifying because you you may well have missed the boat to do anything good if you wait for two days, uh, in these cases to do surgery in a case that needs it, and the methyl pred is is certainly not going to, I mean you know in, in humans that the the trial you know the follow up time for the trial was was six months and a year or. Um, you know, so so two days is far too early. If you see an improvement, it's not the uh, it's not the steroids. It's uh, it's something else. That's great. So, are there any other uh, treatments out there that are that are on the rise? Do you think that that maybe we have questions about that some people might be using or might not, um, or maybe you know watch this space? Uh, I, th- I think it's a it's definitely a watch this this space. Um, you know that there are, you know that 
there are you know, many um, many different compounds which are which are constantly being tested, and a a drug um, to sort of insert into this this sort of vicious cycle of um, of uh, secondary spinal cord injuries is sorely needed, and you know, I, I you know, I can kind of see the, you know, I can see why clinicians in practice want to give steroids because they want to, you know, they want to do something. But I, I guess the, the, you know, the the key point is that the, um, you know, and it's and I guess because it's not a drug, it kind of may get get you know, forgotten, but, um, you know, spinal cord perfusion is, is, um, you know, that has been studied extensively and that has consistently been shown to be a, a, um, a, uh, you know, important in outcome as in, you know, animals that have, you know, animals that are, have spinal cord injury and they're hypotensive, um, they have poor outcomes. Um, hum, you know, in humans, it's, a, it's very, um, very well documented so um you know i, I think with these cases the, the the key is to um you know assess these patients um and if there is a um you know if there is a if they are severely um you know that they, they have a what clinically uh, appears to be a, a, a severe spinal cord injury if there is the potential for for um you know referral once they are um hemodynamically stabilized um you know ra rather than waiting for you know some sort of drug to, to work they, they really should be um you know re referred or, or dealt with early whether it's in your own practice or whether it's uh, they're, they're sent on to another practice okay i think that that's a great place to actually stop the uh, the recording of the first part of this uh, this interview with uh, Dr. Patrick Kenny. So we'll wrap it up there and we'll give you the, the next instalment uh, next week or we might have a little break before we, we uh, do that. So thanks again for listening and please don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit-based device. Um, that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. Uh, if you could leave a five-star review, obviously other stars are available on uh, Apple Podcasts. That would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends um, and uh, hopefully the, the veterinary friends and and remember we'll uh, we'll put a few notes on the rvc pages for you so just type in rvc clinical podcast into your search engine and it should be top of the tree so if you have any comments or suggestions on this podcast please get in touch you can either email at uh, dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield and we'll catch up with uh, patrick next time until next time bye bye